Well, good morning, church. Following Robert is uh, intimidating because now you get this boring Midwest accent. And uh, so thankful that he is here sharing uh, what God is doing. My name is Phil Shields. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church and want to welcome all of you to this service, uh, gathering, worshiping together. If you are new, if you're visiting, checking this place out, we'd love to meet you. I want to encourage you to stop at the welcome desk out there uh, in the atrium. You can ask any question you want and uh, they will try to answer it. And so uh, we'd love to connect with you. Uh, if you're watching online, so glad that you're with us. I uh, want to invite you to join us here next week and be with us as we gather to worship. So we have been in uh, this incredible chapter of Matthew, Matthew 12. And in Matthew 12, over the last several weeks, uh, we have looked at some things that uh, Jesus has done and, and he has said and spoken. And as we've kind of journeyed, we're going to conclude that chapter today. But what we need to see is that throughout this chapter, Jesus ends up coming and he is proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. That his entrance into the world has brought that and that he is the long-awaited king of Israel, the king for us today. And so as he was doing that, the, the religious leaders ended up hearing some of this and, and what we find in chapter 12 is basically this, uh, this moment in time where uh, Jesus and the religious leaders are now uh, very much parting ways. The relationship is broken. And from here on out throughout the gospel, we're going to see that the religious leaders are basically trying to find a charge to bring against Jesus, to charge him and eventually uh, to kill him. And so uh, as we look at that, we're going to take a uh, look at these last verses and what Jesus is saying before we enter a new section in our series on the parables. And so I want to ask you uh, a deep spiritual question for you to reflect on, and it's this question. Do you remember when you were 16? You probably do if you grew up in the state of Illinois. And Illinois... That is a big year because that's the year that you get your driver's license. Now, I need you to be praying. My daughter will be getting that driver's license in the next couple, uh, in the next month. And so uh, I am going through this transition in our home. But I think back to whenever I got my license. And when I got my license, as I was going out and I was driving, uh, there were some things that took place. And one of those things is that I realized that whenever I was driving, that I would very much unintentionally drive fast. There were times I just, that maybe I was trying to do it, but there were a lot of times that I just put the pedal to the floor and I would go. And what would end up happening often at 16, is I would get pulled over. Now, like any 16-year-old, I, uh, I was sitting there realizing that the moment that I got pulled over meant that there was this thing called tension between me and my parents. In fact, the first ticket I got 
And yes, the first, I'm not gonna tell you how many, but the first one I thought, okay, not a big deal. I can hide it from mom and dad. They'll never know. Until the state of Illinois mailed us at home and that tension rose in our home uh, because that's when they found out. But often uh, there were times, other times that I would get pulled over and like any 16-year-old, that was a moment of faith for me. And I would start with this statement, God, if you really exist, (laughs) you will send a sign and get me out of this ticket. And I would trust. And the sign that was often sent was the sign of a ticket that was given to me to keep everybody in the Winfield, West Chicago, Wheaton area safe. It was a sign for me to learn a lesson. I don't know about you, but I would imagine that you have asked God for a sign. It could be that for some of you, you're going through a relational divide. Or maybe you're going through a health issue right now. And you're asking, God, if you exist, if you, Jesus, if you are the son of God, you'll get me through this. And what we end up seeing is that as we read Matthew 12, verses 38 through 50, what we need to see is that there's a sign that has already been given that moves through every area of our life. And so we need to understand that the the life and death of Jesus is the greatest sign that your faith, your obedience, and that your life is valid. That Jesus' life and death is the greatest sign that we were ever, ever given. And so I want to walk through this text with you, and we're going to look at it as Jesus' sign draws us to this faith, to obedience, and to our life. And so we're going to start with faith. So look at your text. It says in verse 38, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teachers, we want to see a sign from you. Now that's a a key word there, that that word sign, because it's a a different word than what we actually are, are thinking that they're asking for. But what we find is that this is a really ironic uh, statement for the Pharisees to come to Jesus and to be asking for this. See, just earlier, they have seen Jesus perform all these miracles. And they've seen him do these miracles. And now, and during that time, they ended up saying, just earlier in the chapter, that when he removed a demon from a a man and made the man be able to see and that he was no longer mute, they said, he is working with Satan. They said that Jesus and Satan were working together. Now the irony is that they are coming and they're asking Jesus for a sign. And for Jesus to perform that sign or to listen to the the command would have been a really wrong thing for him to do because he would have been catering to them and to their unbelief. He's not going to cater to that 
uh, unbelief. He would, have had, he would have allowed the Pharisees to determine the standard for what faith looks like. And friends, uh, no matter what Jesus would have done or any sign he would have been given, what we have to understand is that for the Pharisees, none of it would have been good enough. It wouldn't matter what he would have done. They still were rejecting him. And so the, the Pharisees ask for something. But notice, they're not asking for an earthly miracle. See, they didn't say, show us a miracle. They said, show us a sign. And so what the Pharisees are asking for is, they are saying, give us a heavenly sign that you are who you say you are. See, the Pharisees can remember back to the Old Testament and to Moses. If you remember that story, Moses went to Pharaoh and one of the things he did is he took the staff that God gave him and he threw it down and it turned into a snake. And what Moses found out is that the Egyptian magicians could also do that. They would throw the staff down and it would turn into a snake. And so the Pharisees are saying, we don't want anything that an earthly person can do. We want a sign from heaven, something up in the heavens that will reveal that you actually are the Messiah. But in all reality, what they're trying to do is that they're trying to catch him. They're trying to catch Jesus so they can bring a charge against him through the law. And so the, the request that they are making to Jesus in this time is that they have incredible evil intent in their life. They have a lack of faith uh, in their life. And what we see in the verses before this, if you look at verses 34 and 35, you end up seeing Jesus say, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So he's telling them, even there, that you have this incredible evil intent in your, in your life. But let's jump to our, our verses here. Look at verse 39. Jesus answers them. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, I want you to see these two words, this word wicked and this word adulterous. These are uh, interesting words that Jesus is, is using here. And he ends up, uh, whenever we look at that, this, he ends up saying that these men are full of wickedness because there is actually a connection to something that was said to him earlier in the book of Matthew. See, what the Pharisees are basically saying is, if you are the son of God, you'll give us a sign. But we've been going through Matthew. And if we go back to chapter 4, you find an interesting thing, a scene that's taking place. Jesus is in the wilderness, and Satan comes to him. And in chapter 4, verse 3, Satan ends up saying to Jesus, if you are the son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down and the angels will raise you up. Notice the phrase, if you are the son of God. Now the religious leaders, 
that should have had their eyes open for the Messiah to come are saying the same phrase, if you are the son of God, you'll give us a sign. This is why Jesus is calling them wicked and he puts them in the same category as those that work with Satan. But then he uses this other term, this term adulterous. I think we all know what that term means, but whenever we look at this, why is he saying that? Why is he using this term of adulterous generation? And that's when we have to understand what God has said throughout all the centuries and how he's described his people. God, and then in the New Testament, Jesus uses this metaphor, but God uses this metaphor for his people, and he uses the metaphor of a bride and groom. When a bride and groom come together, they, they reveal this love relationship that is this committed relationship that's going to work through all seasons of life. It's a commitment that's made to one another, and, and God ended up making that covenant commitment to his people Israel and to the church. And so he's saying, like, this is a love relationship, and Jesus is pointing out that this metaphor, that these men are about uh, basically committing adultery. He's saying that they are breaking this love commitment. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying that those who ask for a sign are the kind of people that aren't faithful. He's saying, you're asking for a sign, but you're not even going to be faithful to the commitment that I've made to you. And so when we look at this, he, he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a sign. There's going to be a sign that comes. But the leaders here are showing that their faith is a faith where love and loyalty is only a fleeting moment. And that it could turn really quickly. Now, I want to ask you to think for a moment about your funeral. That might seem strange. But think about your funeral and people are there and they're uh, sharing thoughts about you and your life. Maybe you're at my funeral and somebody gets up and they end up saying, when we think of Phil, we think of Phil and Phil was a wicked and adulterous man. I mean, how many of us would want that stated about us? How many of us want that to be the memory of what we leave behind? But what we find out in Matthew 12 is that is exactly what the Pharisees will be remembered as. If you read through the New Testament, it's going to be hard to find any place that the Pharisees are talked about in a great way. This is what they're remembered for. And it's why we have to understand that the life and death of Jesus is the greatest sign that your faith, obedience, and life are valid. That the sign of the life and death of Jesus is the greatest thing to ever happen to this world. So then Jesus, in this text, he ends up going to two fascinating Old Testament references. Look at verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Now, you might not know the story of Jonah. Maybe you do know the story and you've read, uh, read the book of Jonah. Or maybe you only know the story of Jonah because you watched VeggieTales. But the story of Jonah is a fascinating story. God ends up talking to, to Jonah and he ends up saying, I'm going to send you to the Ninevites. I have a message I want you to give to them. See, the Ninevites were this brutal people, incredibly violent people. And so they raised up an army and they ended up marching against Israel and they came with force and with power and with violence and, and using human trafficking to take over Israel. And so they came and they, they brought brutality to them. The Ninevites were God's enemy, the people of God's enemy. They weren't, uh, they weren't Israelites, they weren't God's chosen, they were Gentiles. And so... God ends up saying to Noah, I want you to go preach a message of judgment on them. And, and Jonah, like every great prophet, ends up saying, no way. And he tries to run away from God. So you probably know, he gets on the, this boat, and he goes, and as the boat's going, the storm hits, and the crew ends up asking, why is this happening? Who has done what? for this storm to rage the way that it's raging. And nobody can figure it out. And they ask Jonah, who are you? What have you done? He says, it's me. And he says, throw me overboard. Now, get this. Jonah would rather die than go preach this message to the Ninevites. So he's thinking, just throw me overboard. I'm going to die throws him overboard, and he is swallowed by a large fish. And he ends up spending three days, three nights in the belly of this fish until the fish ends up spitting him out, and God comes again and says, I want you to go to the Ninevites to preach this message. So Jonah goes, and he preaches, and the most incredible thing happens. The king of the Ninevites ends up hearing this message, and he makes this declaration that the, the people of Nineveh need to confess, they need to repent. And so to, they are to put on sackcloth, and they want to make this full repentance. And so he even, get this, he even says, put sackcloth on our animals. And they repent, and because they repent to the God of Israel, he ends up withdrawing his judgment. What's interesting in the book of Jonah is Jonah hates that because these are his enemies. He has no empathy, no grace, nothing. He just, he's preached the message. But what's interesting is in the story, the, the repentance comes and it's because Jonah is assigned to them because Jonah spent three days and three nights in what was to be a tomb and ended up actually be, being given new life. And Jesus starts pointing. <laughs> Someone greater than Jonah has come. Now notice, Jonah didn't give one sign. He didn't perform any miracles. 
He preached a message of judgment, not of how to make your life better. He didn't didn't do anything except preach the message that God told him to give because Jonah himself was the sign to the Ninevites. See, the point that Jesus is making is that the citizens of Nineveh, these Gentile awful people, because of their repentance, will one day stand in judgment on the judgment day over the wicked generation and over the religious leaders of God's people. These that that shouldn't be part of, of the covenant now are because of their repentance. Imagine this. The Pharisees saw miracles. They heard Jesus preaching from the greater Jonah and they still didn't repent. Then Jesus ends up going in verse 42 to another Old Testament story says, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. So the queen of the south is actually the queen of Sheba. And you find this story in the book of 1 Kings. The queen of Sheba was probably lo- located in modern day Ethiopia, which means that she traveled about 1,500 plus miles to Jerusalem to meet with Solomon. This was so important to her that she wanted to see, is Solomon really as wise as he says he is? As people say he is. And so she travels to meet with Solomon and she's thinking, I'm going to stump this guy. I'm going to ask all these questions. And through their dialogue, she ends up accepting every answer that Solomon gives and says his wisdom is from the God of Israel. And the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, ends up accepting the answers and worshiping God. The God of Solomon. Now get this, again, like the Ninevites, she is an outsider. She's a Gentile. She isn't an Israelite. She shouldn't know everything that God has done for Israel. But Jesus ends up saying that she will, on the day of judgment, will stand in judgment over this evil generation and over the religious leaders, over the pastors of Israel. And so we look at this. We say the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, they, they, uh, they responded to God without miracles. They, they responded without like teaching for the Queen of the South. She just got answers. They didn't even have the life and death of Jesus and they responded to God because of the truth that they heard. And so it leads to asking this question. On the day of judgment, Where will the Ninevites and the Queen of the South be? They'll be on God's side. They're going to be on God's side, and it's because of what God is in the business of doing. Because God takes outsiders and transforms them into kingdom insiders. Get that. He takes the Gentiles that we're outside of of God's covenant with Israel. And he says, I, through this covenant, 
am going to bless all nations and I'm going to bring these Gentiles into my kingdom. He ends up going after their faith. So the fate of the ones that are talking face to face with Jesus in this scene is tragic because they actually had the son of God in front of them and they refused to believe. Now, I want to encourage you on something. What they had is even less than what you and I have. See, we not only have history, but we have Jesus who has come, who has given his life, who has died for us, and then gave us this incredible book full of truth that is living and active. And so we have been given everything. And so my question is, have you repented? Have you repented and and given your faith over to the risen Savior? He wants to draw you to himself. So Jesus' sign not only deals with our faith, but it also deals with our obedience. Notice what happens next. Jesus uh, is going to spend some time in the, uh, the next chapters, and we're actually going to start a n- new section next week on the parables of Jesus. And so he starts telling these parables. But we actually get a really short parable in this section in verses 43 through 45. He ends up telling the story of an impure spirit, of a demon. Now, Hannibal gets up here and he usually welcomes us by calling us familia. So I want to ask you, are we tight enough for me to confess something to you? Yeah? Okay. So here's my confession. There are times when people will come over to our home. And when they come, my wife will usually ask me, Phil, will you help pick, out, pick up the house? Absolutely, babe. And so I've gotten really good at something. I've gotten really good at taking everything that is laying out and throwing it all into one closet. <laughs> you know, you, th- you throw it all in there and you shut the closet. And why do you do that? It's because the outside's going to look really clean. But in all reality, whenever I do that, I'm actually not cleaning. I'm actually putting things in the wrong place. And I'm, I'm, I'm not taking care of, of things the way that I should be taking care of them. And so all I'm trying to do is hide what has really taken place in our home. Jesus ends up talking about this. See, in Matthew 12, 22, that's the beginning of, of this dialogue that's happening. In Matthew 12, is where Jesus um, <clears throat> basically took the demon out of this, of this man. And that's what starts this. And now he tells a story about a demon, an impure spirit that had residence in a place and then leaves that place 
and can't find any rest. And so what he ends up doing is he finds seven more spirits that are stronger than him. And all that means is that that spirit is getting stronger and stronger and ends up returning to the place that he had once resided and ends up making that place worse off than it was just him. Look at verse 50, or uh, 45. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus is pointing this out, He's saying, you can remove things from your life. You can, you can work really hard at throwing things in your closet. But unless you deal with them, unless you actually uh, deal with them and allow the, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, his life and death to come and reside within you, what will happen is you will become a neutral person. The reason I say that is because neutrality towards Jesus is evil disbelief. It's evil disbelief. That's exactly what the, the Pharisees were doing. They actually looked really great on the outside, but inside their heart needed this transformation to happen. And so I want to ask you, are you looking really good on the outside, but your heart is empty? See, Jesus is saying, look, if, if I'm going to come in, I'm going to come in and I'm going to reside. And by me residing, it means that you are going to be a follower of me that is about obeying my will, doing my will in every area of, my, of your life. So the relationship with a spouse or the relationship with a friend or the relationship with your children or a neighbor or your workplace is all about living in obedience to the will of God for whatever God wants to do in that place. And he's saying it's not about working harder or that you work hard to gain salvation. It's because, it's, he's saying because of your salvation, you're going to obey because God's will is about God's glory. So what needs to happen in your heart today? So he deals with the faith and the obedience, and then we see this interesting uh, scene at the end of this text. And he deals with how Jesus' sign draws your life, all of your life, and makes your life full. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' half-brothers come to where Jesus is at. Notice it doesn't talk about Joseph. And, and scholars believe that at this point, Joseph has probably died. And so Jesus being the oldest is the one that is uh, probably to, the one to take care of his mother. And yet he's, he's doing some things and the, the family of Jesus is likely outside this space wherever Jesus is because Matthew is pointing something out. 
He's just gently pointing out and giving a hint at the indecision in Mary, the mother of Jesus' life, and Jesus' siblings. In fact, Matthew's uh, kind of nice here and, and proper, but if you go to the Gospels of Mark and John, what you end up seeing is some incredible things that are taking place, and, and we don't often talk about it, but in Mark 3.21, we find that Mary and, and, the, and her sons go to, to Jesus where he's at, and the text ends up saying they went to take charge of him. And the reason they went to take charge of him is because they thought he had lost it mentally. Now get that. Mary, who, you know, at Christmas we celebrate what she has done, but even at this point in her life, there is indecision. The siblings of Jesus, there's indecision, and they're saying, he's losing it. And we gotta go get him. We gotta, we gotta lock him up, because he has lost it. But yet, notice what Jesus does. Even though that's his family, Jesus ends up not letting them stop him. And he ends up revealing something about family here. He ends up pointing out and, and looking around and he says, these are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. He points to his disciples. Why is Jesus doing that? Because Jesus is pointing out that he loves his family but just because they are family, they are blood, doesn't give them special treatment. That they still need to understand who he is. See, it's a, a metaphor for what's happening. Just because they're an Israelite does not mean that they are in union with God. That it only comes in your life when you have faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And so he ends up saying, these are what he's, are, are the important ones. These are, these are the, the important family. And so what he ends up doing is he ends up saying, my people, and when we look at it through the New Testament, my people, my church is an incredible family that is to care for one another, to love one another, to walk with one another. They aren't to just gather to worship on a Sunday, but they are to be with one another and to care for one another so that their lives are full and they're growing and cared for the entire time. He's saying the spiritual family ends up taking precedent over the biological one. Now, I want to be careful how I say this, but I want to make a point. I believe the American church has done a really good job at raising up the nuclear family. And we have done really well to say, you are to care for those that live within your walls or that carry your last name or your nuclear family. You are to care for them and to disciple them up. And I believe we do a great job here at encouraging our families to do that. But here's where we've gotten it wrong. Jesus is saying that the church family is just as important. He's saying that it's time for us to not shy away from one another, 
but that because of his work, he is bringing us together to care for one another and to walk alongside one another through every season of life. And friends, there are times that we have failed in that. And we are given the opportunity to say, no, because of the work of Jesus, we are going to be the family that Jesus has brought together because we are adopted by his grace. You are my brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and and we have to see this because the religious leaders were banking on the bloodline and Jesus saying that those who live within the kingdom of heaven, that it doesn't depend on family relationship, but on a surrendered life to God. And that surrendered life ends up becoming a full life. See, you and I need an intimate relationship, a relationship with Jesus that radically transforms us. And what we have to understand as we walk out these doors and as we're talking with one another is that the only sign that we need is that the life and death of Jesus is the greatest sign that your faith, that your obedience, and that your life are valid. That's what makes your life valid. Now what's interesting is Matthew 12 urges those that aren't believers, that aren't followers of Jesus to surrender to him, to say now is the time to surrender to Jesus. And so if you're sitting here and you're checking this Jesus thing out, I want to encourage you to spend some time reflecting on if now is the time that you are to surrender to him. Matthew 12 also encourages those of us that are followers to say uh, that we need to be people that are constantly proclaiming the message of Christ. That we proclaim it through our faith, through our obedience, through our life, wherever we're at. See, what Matthew 12 points us to is Good Friday and Easter. To the work that Jesus did. And so... It points us then to a table. In just a moment, we're going to spend some time at the communion table. And this is a table to remember what Jesus has done. Remember how costly it was that he gave his life for you. And that in that cost, while he was with his disciples, he was giving thanks and then entering this space to rescue you and me, to pour out his love and his grace so that you and I could be part of a spiritual family and that we're adopted by him. So if you're checking Jesus out, I want to just encourage you to reflect on uh, Matthew chapter 12 and just during this time, just to think about that that this table right now is something for you to wait on. But for those of you that are followers, this is a table that we come to remember. So I want to give you a moment, just a quiet moment, that before we partake of the elements, that you spend some time in confession and repentance. And you put 
Jesus in the right place in your heart (laughs) and let him deal with those things that are going on in your life. So take a moment and then we'll gather together. Jesus, we confess our need for you. We confess that we need to come to this table frequently because we forget so easily. So we come to remember the life, the death, the resurrection that you gave for us to unite us with your Father. So we thank you for it. We thank you for this remembrance. And may you be glorified through it. It's in your name I pray, amen. So if you have the elements, I wanna encourage you to open the small part to remove the bread And in Matthew 26, we see the scene of Jesus gathering with his disciples. And he ends up saying, the text says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. turn your elements over and open the juice. In the same text, it goes on to say that Jesus took a cup and again, he gave thanks and he gave it to them. He said, drink from it, all of you. Jesus, your blood, your body was broken for us. And we cannot thank you enough for that. And so as we remember, we now want to worship and to give you thanks. And so we raise our voices together to declare that you are king, that you are king in our life, and that you are the only one that deserves the worship of our heart. And so we give you praise. It's in your name I pray, amen.